Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's December 6, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Alec Baldwin blames everyone but himself. The shocking news that celebrity and outspoken liberal Alec Baldwin shot dead the cinematographer on the set of a film of which he served as executive producer on October 21 has been hard to take and has clearly been hard for Baldwin to digest. There can be no doubt as to the unintentional nature of the fatal shooting and the sincerity of Baldwin's wish that this terrible, unexpected event had never happened. In his relatively few photo ops and interviews since the death of Helena Hutchins, Baldwin appears genuinely distraught and remorseful, as would anyone who is not psychotic. But that does not mean that Baldwin's conduct and his legal maneuverings in the time since that awful incident have set a standard of exemplary conduct. Baldwin seems determined not to own the consequences of the lack of safety and industry-wide protocol for which he bore supreme responsibility as the executive producer of the movie Rust. Whatever failures may be placed at the door of armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed or assistant director Dave Halls, everything happened under Baldwin's auspices. If employees were ignoring protocol, or if people who had no business in positions of responsibility were in prominent positions on the set of the film, it is hard to know who bears more direct accountability for such circumstances than the executive producer. Armorer Gutierrez-Reed had one job. She had to make sure that no one handed an actor on the set a weapon containing any live rounds. And if she did not understand this singular responsibility, she had no business being armorer. It is fair to ask who would ever voluntarily place his or her life in the hands of a 24-year-old armorer with practically no relevant work experience. The buck here began and ended with Baldwin, but he continually alludes to other people and factors supposedly more directly to blame than himself. The New York Post's Maureen Callahan gets it right in her op-ed piece on December 3, Alec Baldwin Blames the Victim in Sickening Interview. The interview in question, of course, is Baldwin's sit-down with George Stephanopoulos, broadcast on December 2 on ABC and Hulu, in which Baldwin expressed remorse over the death of Hutchins, but appeared to stop short of accepting responsibility, and explicitly denied that he feels any guilt over what happened. Callahan blasts the interviewer for not asking Baldwin more pointed questions, and characterizes Stephanopoulos as a friend of Baldwin's from the Hamptons calling this a fact that the typical viewer would not know. It certainly does seem to explain why Stephanopoulos does not hold Baldwin directly to account for allowing such unsafe conditions on the set of a film of which he was executive producer, and does not seem to find it morally or legally problematic that no criminal charges are likely to follow the fatal shooting. Real Intolerance We hear a lot these days about efforts to remove symbols of a less egalitarian and tolerant past from public display, and to purge or censor works containing passages that do not jibe with current sensibilities. Sometimes, writers who go against politically correct dogma run into problems when trying to place their work with publishers. People don't always stop and ask, 
just how severe the alleged intolerance is in the scheme of things, whether it is really serious compared to events in history or to what is going on in parts of the world today. The Economist's November 6 issue contains an incisive article, Spilling Over, on a wave of horrific violence in Bangladesh driven largely by sectarian hatred. It details how the alleged discovery of a copy of the Koran wedged under the feet of a Hindu idol sparked a series of vicious attacks on Hindus and other religious minorities in the 90% Muslim country. The article describes how a crowd of 10,000 Muslims gathered outside the mosque in Dhaka chanting, Hang the Culprits, and how rioters, inspired by sectarian fervor and a desire to avenge the alleged desecration, attacked Hindus and seized their property leaving at least three dead, including a 62-year-old man, Dilip Das, who had set out to worship in the Hindu temple in Kumila in eastern Bangladesh, the article reports. According to the article, Bangladesh's prime minister, Sheikh Hasina Wajed, did not condemn the violence unequivocally but rather blamed it on the treatment that Muslims have received in India. The article notes that Muslims living in that nation are not entirely without legitimate grievances given that the Hindu nationalist government of Narendra Modi recently implemented a streamlined path to citizenship for refugees, excluding those who happen to be Muslim, and that the ruling party has labeled Muslims from the border regions of India infiltrators. Violence against Muslims in India, the article notes, quickly followed the wave of anti-Hindu attacks. In a world where such violence goes on, one might ask just how significant an offense it truly is when someone on a college campus uses the term girl instead of woman, or when a professor trying to teach people about the past reads aloud a passage that reflects what people in the past thought and said. One might look critically, as Jordan Peterson has done, at the use of politically correct pronouns backed by the punitive power of the state. If those we call the woke really do stand for inclusiveness and diversity and against bigotry and intolerance wherever they rear their heads, it seems curious that we hear not a peep from them about the horrific violence going on in parts of the world, and that they focus their energies on the more arcane points of etiquette in Western countries. Or, given their view of the world as a battleground between oppressors and people of color, perhaps it is not curious at all. Ed Shames, R.I.P. The sad news this week is that Colonel Ed Shames, one of the last surviving members of the famed Band of Brothers who fought heroically in the Second World War, died on December 3 at the age of 99. Shames was born in Norfolk, Virginia and lived a good part of his life in the Hampton Roads area, save for military training and preparations that took him to a number of places in the U.S. and abroad including Petersburg, Virginia, Toccoa, Georgia, and England during the run-up to D-Day. Then, of course, there was his service in Europe. As a member of Easy Company, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division, Shames made the jump into Normandy on D-Day, and he went on to take part in other critical operations of the later stages of the war in Europe, such as Operation Pegasus and Operation Market Garden. According to his Legacy.com obituary, Shames was the first member of the 101st to enter the Dachau concentration camp, and he entered and took cognac from Hitler's Eagle's Nest headquarters, later using the cognac in a toast at the bar mitzvah of his eldest son. 
After the war, Chambs never ceased to be active in veterans' affairs, and he helped organize a reunion of surviving members of the Band of Brothers in Norfolk in October 2004. When this writer met with and interviewed Colonel Shames in Chesapeake, Virginia, shortly after that reunion, Shames was approachable and informative about his wartime experiences. But he also made a point of sharply distinguishing between the real stuff of history and the sensationalism that has helped make certain popular historians rich. He said that all too often, interviewers wanted to hear about explosions and bullets flying around. There was plenty of that during the war, of course, but actual combat is nothing like the sensationalized and highly sanitized action served up in the films, miniseries, and the works of Stephen Ambrose, whom Shames had an argument with that nearly led to him being cut out from certain popular histories. The focus of the interview with Colonel Shames was on his experiences as a soldier on the ground and his use of ground-level intelligence as a means of outsmarting and outpacing German forces that menaced Allied positions during the Ardennes Offensive. We do not really touch on politics and current controversies, but this writer came away with a sense that Shames valued the warrior culture that characterized the military in which he came of age and would not have smiled on efforts underway now under President Biden to change the focus from winning wars with the fewest possible casualties to promoting diversity and other progressive goals irrelevant to the military's purpose. Ed Shames is an American hero deserving of the highest honors and the fondest tributes. R.I.P. Mario Vargas Loza in the Spotlight The website Book and Film Globe, edited by Neil Pollock, has generously given this writer space to discuss, analyze, and critique the mainstream media's reception of some of the most celebrated authors of our time. Peruvian novelist and short story writer Mario Vargas Loza has just won one of the literary world's most coveted honors, election to the Académie Française, despite being 10 years older than the maximum age for inductees, which is supposedly 75, and despite not writing in French. The publishing house Farrer Strauss has also just released a translation of Vargas Loza's latest novel, Harsh Times, which is the subject of a positive review by Jonathan Blitzer in The New Yorker. The literary establishment of the United States, like that of France, is ever sensitive to the need for greater diversity in literature, whether that means reading, assigning, publishing, promoting, or conferring honors on more writers from historically underrepresented and underappreciated demographics. We might also mention here the literary and cultural establishment of Sweden, whose prestigious academy recently bestowed its highest honor, the Nobel Prize for Literature, on Abdul Razak Gurna, a talented novelist born in Zanzibar and raised in Tanzania. It is true that the question, who's your favorite Tanzanian writer, doesn't always work well as a conversation starter, and that there could be more knowledge of and appreciation for authors from that part of the world. Gurna is a defensible choice for Nobel laureate, though arguably not more so than such other literary titans as Haruki Murakami of Japan, Peter Carey of Australia, Les Murray of Australia, Michel Welbeck of France, or Gaetan Brulot of Quebec. So too with the French Academy's election of Vargas Loza. 
He is a wonderful writer whose prolific output of novels and stories reaches across more than six decades at this point. Some of us had a chance to catch up with Fargus Loza, so to speak, through his brief appearance in the Ernest Hemingway documentary airing on PBS last spring, where Vargas Loza praised The Old Man and the Sea as the epic tale of a struggle between man and nature. But Vargas Loza is most interesting when he is talking about and writing about his homeland of Peru. Here, paradoxically, is where he poses problems for the politically correct sensibilities of the left-leaning journalists and cultural establishments that praise his work and welcome him into their fold. Vargas Loza's 1993 novel, Death in the Andes, is an account of a mining community in a remote part of Peru at the height of the two-decade Shining Path insurgency, which killed an estimated 70,000 people. Though the Shining Path were Maoist guerrillas, hell-bent on ending what they saw as capitalist exploitation of the peasants of Peru, those who try to fit the conflict into a familiar, politically correct playbook of oppressed versus oppressors are attempting to ram square pegs into round holes. Over and over in his novel, Vargas Loza depicts the loathing of Shining Path for those the guerrillas deemed sexual deviants, and for homosexuals in particular. Given this reality, the gays and lesbians of Peru must have hoped devoutly for the military to crush Shining Path, even though, in the PC playbook, the military are the bad guys, propping up a conservative order aligned with America and with the West more broadly than with the indigenous insurgency. History is so much more complex than some would like it to be. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.